Our New Testament reading is from Luke 1, 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning on the third Sunday of Advent. And in particular, today we have the privilege of, of looking at one of the most beautiful, one of the most wonderful, uh, one of the most well-known passages of, of Scripture. And as, as we say each week before we look into the Scripture, we remember that, that it is the Word of God that, that calls us together, that collects us, that creates us as the church and, and crafts us as the church into what God intends us to be. So as we get ready in, in anticipation uh, to look at this scripture, uh, let us come before the Lord asking him to work mightily through his word. Let us pray. God, our Father, we, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for the promise that you have given to us and that you fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, Lord, and it would help us to prepare our hearts to more fully receive the promise of Jesus Christ, which you have given to us and you have made good to us in Advent. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's name, in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, Today we're looking at the Magnificat, at Mary's great response of, of praise to what God has done for her. It's, it's Mary's response to the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in her womb to form this promised child. But I want to begin by looking at something particular. I want to draw special attention to the first half of verse 48. In 48, Mary says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And what is here translated as, as humble estate is, is the Greek word taponosis. And in a sense, it, it, it might be too weak of a translation to think of a mere humble estate. And in fact, one Greek dictionary defines this word as an experience of reversal in fortunes. It also describes it as a kind of humiliation. And actually, you know, we, we, we looked at James over the summer, and James uses this very word in James 1, 19 through 20. James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. And what James speaks of here, the humiliation of the rich, this is actually the same word that we find in Mary's song, tapenosis. Uh, 
And it often denotes a kind of, of switch, a kind of change, a kind of reversal. We find it when persons exalt themselves and then they are humbled or even humiliated. When we believe ourselves to be much greater than we actually are, and then we are shown often in public that we're something much, much different. This term could be used of a military defeat. You're, you're an army and you think you're very, very strong, but then your, your foe, the enemy army, defeats you and you're humiliated. It could also be used to describe cities that lacked political power and had experienced a kind of loss of influence, a kind of loss of prestige. But it could also be used much, much more broadly. For instance, Philo of, of Alexandria, he was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. He actually was a contemporary of, of Mary. And at one point in his writings, he speaks of a, quote, beautiful humiliation, a beautiful taponosis. And he says it's beautiful because it can destroy a rational thought. He says that we can be humiliated in such a way that we are restored to reason. And I have to put a quick disclaimer here, because when we talk about the pre-modern world before the Enlightenment, reason does not mean a kind of disengaged, detached, abstracted sort of of thinking. In the pre-modern world, to, to be rational was just to be in right accord with reality. It was to act rightly in the created order, in creation, as the kind of creature you are. To be rational in this sense was to be properly human. And this is what the biblical tradition refers to as wisdom. So in this sense, to be rational was was to be ethical and to pursue what was good and perfective of human nature. To be rational and ethical was for humans to pursue their proper telos, their proper end, their proper purpose. It was for humans to pursue proper joy and and happiness, to pursue the true good life. And so Philo, like Mary, and, and he, like Mary, shares a Hellenistic and Jewish context, he can speak of a strange word, a strange term, a beautiful humiliation, a beautiful taponosis one that prevents irrational thoughts because it it comes about when someone is fighting against reality, against the way things are. And we're not acting irrationally because we're, we're acting against some detached or abstracted logic, but because we're acting against the very logic and order of creation. And to work against reality, to exalt ourselves above creation, just is to set ourselves up for humiliation. Theologian Robert Jensen puts this well. He writes, Those who do whatever they can do will come into conflict with reality, and if they persist, will be broken upon it. And we we, we know this in in our lives. We may wish to be healthy, but we might also wish to eat whatever we want. But eventually, reality will catch up. Perhaps... While we're young, we can stay healthy while we eat dessert after dessert after dessert after dessert. But eventually, as we get older, reality will catch up to us and our health will start to fade. Reality will have its way. 
Or we may wish to have close relationships, but also wish to just say whatever we want to say. But if our words are often harsh and untrue, we'll find ourselves separated from others and pushing away those close friendships that we actually desire. Words like this cannot support the real and actual demands of human relationships. We'll find ourselves isolated, and again, reality will have its way. So what this means is that we can't just do whatever we want to do and then flourish as human beings. Reality will have its way. And so what is here translated as a humble estate can speak of a reversal. A reversal of status, or perhaps more accurately, a kind of striking and often painful realization of who we really are and what we really are. And it's something that frees us from the delusions of grandeur that we so often have. We believed ourselves to be such and such, but actually we found that we are something quite different. And we see this phenomenon of of humbling, of, of even humiliating, later in Mary's song as well. Look with me at verses 51 through 52. Mary proclaims, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And so this passage actually ends with the term we've been looking at, teponosis, and and we'll get back to that. But first, she also talks about this scattering. So we find both a humiliation, a humbling, but, but also the very act of humbling. We find that the Lord scatters the proud with his arm. We find that he brings down the mighty and he shows that they are not actually mighty. They've been dethroned. We find that the Lord alone is the one who is mighty. And in the image of scattering, what's happening here is we have an allusion to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, which we we looked at before, back in the fall. And in the Tower of Babel, the people are working to make a name for themselves. They've got this new brick building technology, so they're using it to build a tower, and they're making a tower to reach heaven, to come to God on their own terms. And in effect, they are trying to make themselves gods. So what does God do in response? Well, he, he scatters them. He disperses them over the face of the earth. And strangely, this is a kind of blessing because the worst thing that they could continue to do would be to keep building this tower. Not only can the tower not reach to heaven, again, we don't come up to God, God comes up, comes down to us, but even more so, if they continue this building, they're going to continue under this delusion that they are gods. And that's destructive to the human creature. Because the very essence of sin is an an attempt to make our self-gods over against the reality of the one true God. And so God scatters them. He reverses the circumstances to help them see what they really are. God performs what Philo calls an act of beautiful humiliation. He reminds them that they are human. They're not God. 
And he reminds them something that we can't forget, that to be a human is to be a very, very beautiful thing. But we can relate. We ourselves know what it's like to live in Babel. We know what it's like to believe that by our technology, we can restructure to be human. They only had a new technique for making bricks. Look at everything that we have in our technological society. And so just like them, we believe that we can push past the limits that have so long bounded our life and existence. In particular, there's a, there's a sociologist, Peter Berger, and, and he makes an interesting point about modern societies. He says that modern societies all have one assumption, one shared assumption. And it's the assumption that, quote, all human problems can be converted into technical problems, and if the techniques to solve certain problems do not yet exist, then they'll have to be invented. If something's wrong, we just have to find the right technique. If something's wrong, we just have to find the right technology, and then we'll make it work. And to be sure, advances in medicine and technology have done much to contribute to the flourishing of human life. We should receive each of these benefits gratefully. But there are deep human problems that no amount of human ingenuity, no amount of human technology, no amount of human technique can ever solve. They will continue to haunt us, they will continue to scatter us, and they will continue to subject us, if we have eyes to see, beautiful humiliations. And I've used this example before, but it, it fits well here. If you look at the life of, of Steve Jobs, for example, you see his fervor for technology start to fade throughout the course of his life. Uh, when he first started Apple, he had a group of workers, each of which wore a t-shirt that said 90 hours a week and loving it. So, you know, as they get this thing going, they're working 90 hours a week. But a few decades later, we find that Jobs is much more muted in his technological fervor, much more muted in what he thinks technology can actually do for us. And in a 1996 interview with Wire, he says the following, quote, We're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. It's been happening for a long time. Technology is not changing it much, if at all. Jobs likely achieved more than he ever dreamed. He changed the face of technology as we know it. He had no lack of wealth or influence, and certainly in the eyes of the builders of Babel, Jobs was a complete and total success. But what Jobs says here sounds something like, it sounds more like the book of Ecclesiastes. We're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. I want to add, and this too is vanity to the end of what he's saying. Because what we find here is a scattering, a humbling, a reversal, a revealing, a realization. Technology cannot put an end to human strife. Technology cannot put an end to injustice. It can't fix the deep and lasting problems of the world. And as Jobs points out, it cannot solve the problem of death. However much we might seek to operate under the delusions of the builders of Babel. And death is there, 
as that humbling truth, as that most sobering truth. Take for, uh, take for instance the words of Old Testament st- scholar Derek Kidner. And, and he says the following as he reflects upon the reality of death and dying. He, he offers us very sobering words. He says the following, quote, All this will come about at a stage when there is no longer the resiliency of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years, in the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. It's hard to adjust to the closing of that long chapter, to know that now, in the final stretch, there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again, and time will no longer heal, but kill. End quote. This is the scattering, the dethroning, the humbling that awaits all of us. Very few of us will achieve everything that Steve Jobs achieved. But all of us, each and every one of us, exempting the glorious return of Christ in our lifetime, will die. And we have to remember that human death is a punishment. It's a judgment. It's unnatural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a curse that's fallen upon us that affects everything. Just like the builders of Babel, Adam and Eve sought to be God in the place of God. They attempted to set the conditions of their own existence. They strove to make themselves according to their own intentions rather than gladly and gratefully receiving their humanity from God. They desired to be more than humans, so they and we, like them, became less than God's intentions, his grand intentions for humanity. And now we exploit the earth we were meant to steward. We exploit the neighbor we were meant to love and serve. We deny the God we were meant to worship. We get sick, and as both Jobs and Kidner have now experienced, we die. All of us, each and every one of us, even Mary. Again, Mary praises God because he's looked upon her humble estate. Yes, Mary here speaks of her place in society. She's not one of high status. And now because of this pregnancy, she will likely endure scorn from her townspeople. But Mary here is speaking of something more, a humiliation that runs deep, in the human condition. All of us, including Mary, have exalted ourselves over the one true God. And so all of us have been humbled, scattered, and dethroned. Yet God has looked upon this humiliation with love, with care, and with grace. In fact, this humiliation, this humbling, this scattering is meant to be a means that God uses to bring us to ourself to help us realize our lack of control, our lack of autonomy, our lack of independence, our full and complete dependence upon God. It's meant to make us realize that he is God and we are not. But unfortunately, this humiliation, this humbling, can often have the opposite effect. Interestingly, Aristotle uses the, fir- the, the term tapinosis in a distinctly negative sense. It appears multiple times in his work, 
And at one point, he pairs it with a phrase that literally means a littleness of soul, a littleness of soul. And so when we're humbled in this way, we're made little and we become small and our disposition becomes spiteful. And we can relate to this. Uh, an own, uh, a personal confession on, on my part, I remember a few years ago, um, I went to a, a, a birthday party dinner uh, with, uh, for a friend and there was a group of people there and there was one person in particularly who, who had said something uh, public in front of everyone about me. It was, it was clever, but it was cutting. It was a bit of critique and you know, I got my feelings hurt and I couldn't think of anything to say. And I kid you not, for the next two or three days, I just fantasized about all of the clever, mean, cruel things I could have said in response to him. But that is smallness. That is spitefulness. That is pettiness. And that is the kind of littleness of soul that Aristotle warns us about. And that's exactly what I had fallen into. And this smallness can often become our default setting, especially in the modern West. I mean, think about the last hundred years. Uh, for example, the, the doctor, the ethicist, the public intellectual, Leon Cass, he says the following about man's place at the end of the 20th century. He says, mankind as a whole is not obviously more reverent, just, and thoughtful. And internally, the West often seems tired. We appear to have lost our striving for what is highest. So we see this, this smallness in kind of a large cultural sense because when we think about the 20th century, when we were on the cusp of the 20th century, we had plans for great progress, but what did it leave us with? Well, look at our past. We've got world wars, death camps, genocides, sweatshops, environmental degradation, rampant pornography, and increasing family breakdown. And Cass is saying that this has created a kind of smallness in us. We're tired, we're cynical, we're smaller, we're humbled, we're humiliated, we're scattered, we're worse than we thought. And the temptation here is to become smaller people. This is something that, that uh, I mentioned Robert Jensen before, and he says that one problem with the modern world is that we no longer live in stories that are bigger than our own immediate desires. He writes of, of one student that he knew, quote, his reality is rock music, his sexual urges, and at the very fringes, some awareness that to support both of these, medical school might be nice. Medicine is a crucial and important vocation, but after our many humblings, especially the humbling of the 20th century, this student's response seems totally logical. Well, I like music. I like fun, and a job in medicine seems like a great way to keep both those things up as long as I possibly can. But we have to ask ourselves, does this humbling mean that we're stuck with Aristotle's littleness of soul? No. And because there's different kinds of humbling. There's a difference between the humbling that comes from a cutting and critical comment and the humbling that comes from delusional notions of pro progress. The first is not an act of love, but the second one absolutely is. The second one is an act of love, 
because God is helping us to see who and what we really are. Aristotle could not imagine a good humbling. He could not imagine a beautiful humiliation because he didn't realize that because of the fall, our default setting is to see ourselves as functional gods. Because to believe that an act of humbling is an act of love is, that, is to believe that we constantly need to be reminded of who we are, that we constantly live against reality, that we think and act as something other than human, and that we need to be rescued from this smallness. And we see this in Mary. In contrast to Aristotle, who speaks of a littleness of soul, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And what does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that, that, that Mary makes God bigger by her praise. If that were the case, we would be humbling God. God would not be humbling us. What this means is that Mary is exalting the Lord. Mary is praising God for who he is and what he's done. And Mary is making herself bigger. Mary is getting bigger, not God. And as Mary's soul exalts God, she becomes large. She works against the littleness of soul. And we see how this gracious humbling leads to bigness. And as those of us who have been made small by sin, this should come to us as a surprise. In fact, uh, as one New Testament Greek dictionary points out, before the New Testament was written, the verbal form of, of taponosis, the verbal form of this humbling, was rarely used reflexively and almost never used positively. And when we speak of a reflexive verb, we speak of an action we do to ourselves. So others can humble me or I can humble myself. The, the second version would be a reflexive form, to be self-humbled, something we never see and again, almost never in a positive sense. Again, to look at Aristotle, he says, quote, those who humble themselves, there's that same form, those who humble themselves before others reveal their inferiority and fear. And this is a far cry from Mary who humbles herself and exalts the Lord. But there's a connection because when Mary exalts the Lord, she does recognize her fear and inferiority, but not to other humans, but to God himself. By her humbling, she makes herself big. She recognizes her smallness before God, yet in doing so, she becomes larger. So then we have to ask, how are we to hold together this smallness and this bigness? Let's go back to, to Babel. Recall Genesis 11, and we have the scattering judgment of, of God. They sought to make their name great. They sought to become their own gods and God scatters them. But we have to remember that God's judgment is always met with a promise, a promise of salvation, a promise of restoration, a promise of blessing. And we find this promise directly after the judgment of Babel. And this is the very same promise recounted by Mary in her song. Mary says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Why does, a why does Mary mention Abraham here? And, and what does she mean by his offspring? What mercy of God does Mary here refer to? 
Well, this is the promise that God gives to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12. It's God's answering to the scattering of Babel. God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The builders of Babel sought to make their name great. They sought to become gods themselves, yet God answers by promising Abraham that he will make his name great. But how is that? How will that come about? We just recently finished a sermon series on Abraham, and, and we, we, we've talked about the promised seed, the one from the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the one, line of Jacob, the line of, of Judah, and so on, who will come and bless all of the families of the earth. And Abraham's offspring are all those who believe in this promise just as Abraham did. And that promise, that seed, that child, that very fulfillment of the promise is the one whom the Holy Spirit has formed within Mary's womb. What is in her womb is what was promised to Abraham in response to the judgment of Babel. He is God's answer to God's scattering. He is the answer to God's every act of judgment. He is the one who makes God's judgment a gracious and merciful thing. He is God's answer to the humbling of humanity. He is the one for whom the beautiful humiliation is meant to prepare us. And he's the one who completely overturns our categories. In seeking to exalt ourselves above God, we were humbled. In seeking to humble himself below humanity, God was exalted. And so God takes a surprising path here. The humility of God heals the pride of man. And God did this in Jesus Christ as God the Son took a human nature, took a human soul and body in the womb of Mary. And it's interesting to note that the two halves of Christ's work of salvation are actually parsed out into humiliation and exaltation. Look with me at, well, uh, listen with me to uh, question 27 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question asks, in what does Christ's humiliation consist? And the catechism answers, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death on the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. What does this mean? This means that God himself was humiliated. God himself was scattered. God himself suffered the punishment of proud humanity. God himself subjected himself to the miseries of this life, to sickness, to hunger, to poverty, to betrayal, and on the cross to the wrath of God and even death. And this utmost humility of God should humble us. But it's not a humbling that makes us small. It's a most beautiful kind of humbling that makes us bigger. Because when we look at Christ, we see that we are so lost in our sin that our only, help for, only hope for salvation is for God himself to become human, to become our righteousness, and to take the punishment that we 
deserve. That the only way that we can stop trying to become what we're not, God, is for God himself to actually become what he is not, human. That's how lost we are. But let us be humbled by this in a way that makes us bigger. And this is why Jesus, when he takes a child to himself in Matthew 18.4, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the language of self-tapinosis. In contra Aristotle, this does not create a littleness of soul. This is a bigness of soul and a bigness of soul that destroys our pride. We cannot receive Christ as the fulfilled promise unless we truly realize how lost we are without him. Christ is the most beautiful of all humiliations. But to see the beauty of Christ requires the confession and repentance of our sinful pride. Christ is God's great act of healing love for us. And, and remember, we talked about the two halves of Christ's work. We have, we have humiliation, but we also have exaltation, and we cannot forget about that. As question 28 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, in what does Christ's exaltation consist? We find the following answer. Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in coming to judge the world at the last day. This is Christ's exaltation, but it also points to our exaltation. God does not humble us to make us low and to make us little. He humbles us to remind us of the full glory and majesty that he intends for humanity. When Christ returns, he will do what no modern technique or technology ever could. He will do away with all sadness, all sickness, all strife, all corruption, even death itself. And free from death and corruption, we will reign and rule with Christ himself. And so while Christ's first coming, Christ's first advent is a message of humbling, his second coming, his second advent will be one of exaltation. But even now, Christ is already reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And already he is making our name great, just as he promised to Abraham. As Mary tells us, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And when we think about this quotation from Mary, we, we, we see the way that this has already happened, for instance, in the Apostles' Creed. If you think about this creed that the church has confessed throughout the ages, it's interesting to note that there's only two non-divine persons that are mentioned in it. We have Mary and we have Pilate. And who is Pilate? Well, Pilate is the one who humbled himself in the sense described by Aristotle. He cowed to the crowd and he let them commit an injustice against Christ in order for him to save his own skin and to save his own position. And in the process, Pilate became little. 
But not Mary. Mary was the one who humbled herself before God and exalted God in the very depths of her soul, and she became big. And we are those future generations that call Mary blessed and Pilate cursed. And so we have to ask, how are we in our own lives being humbled? What are the harsh realities that we are facing that teach us that we are not God? In our fallen and broken world, they are many, and I I list them with, with trepidation. We find sickness, we find death, we find broken relationships, we find unfulfilled hopes and unfulfilled aspirations. And these scatter us. They teach us how little control we actually have over life. They teach us that we are not gods, and often they are painful. Very, very painful. But they're meant to drive us to God. To lead us to embrace him, to rely upon him, and to learn to love him as the gentle father that he is. And remember the two-step movement of the gospel. It's both humiliation and exaltation. And in each of these ways that we are humbled, we are also called to look forward to the ways that we will be exalted upon Christ's return. In this present life, we are humbled by sickness and by death. But we look forward to an exaltation free from any and all corruption. We are humbled by broken relationships, but we look forward to an exaltation free from betrayal, from strife, from selfishness, from ever having to say goodbye. We are humbled by our unfulfilled hopes and aspirations, but we look forward to an exaltation wherein we will reign with Jesus Christ himself a prospect that overwhelmingly exceeds and surpasses any success we might hope for in this present life. And so Advent invites us into both humiliation and exaltation, which is to say it invites us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith is all in everything it takes. And that faith means that salvation is all of Christ and nothing of ourselves which that is the most humbling and exalting truth of all. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your promise. We thank you that you've looked upon our humble estate, all of the ways that we have been burdened in this world because we are not God. We are not you. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in our pride You have not left us in our smallness, but you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, that our souls might be magnified, that our souls might be enlarged, and that we might become everything that you mean for humanity to be. And we ask this, and we thank you for this, in the name of him who makes every single one of these promises possible, Jesus Christ. Amen.